The last decade has seen an explosion of a new type of company in the mining space. Royalty companies. Royalties are nothing new to mining. They've been around for a long time. The archetype of this type of company is called Franco Nevada, which in the 1980s started buying royalties on various mining operations. A royalty on a mine is no different to the more common types of royalties you might be familiar with, like on a piece of music or a movie. In mining, a royalty is only a small percentage, usually 1-2% of all future earnings of a mine, as long as the mine is in operation. There are other complications with these deals, but in the simplest forms, that is a mining royalty. There are other complications in this type of deal, but in the simplest form, that is a mining royalty. It is one of the ways that people can take advantage of the long-term value that a mine can provide without having to build and operate a mine themselves. Recently, royalty companies have been innovating by getting into a new form of financing called streaming. Just like everyone else, I guess. For a deeper understanding of royalties and streaming, our guest on this episode is Sean Osmar, who in 2016 started Triple Flag Precious Metals. Come join us and let's explore. So Sean, welcome to Expression Radio. Thanks. It's uh, it's good to be here. So before we get into it, Sean, do you want to give a quick introduction to yourself and explain how you got to where you are right now? Yeah, it's it's been a few years now. I uh, I started off graduating in engineering as uh, as a metallurgist in South Africa. Uh, worked for a number of years in the steel and aluminium sector as a metallurgist and a and a production engineer. And then I was really lucky. I got a I got a national scholarship from a mining company called Jankor at the time. Did my MBA at uh, Northwestern at Kellogg and worked on deals in everywhere from China to Colombia to you know Australia. I worked on the Beatrice Billiton merger uh, as well as the integration, which was was a great experience. And then um, uh, Mick Davis, who was CFO of Billiton. I was due to be part of the enlarged group uh, left to found Extrata. And I was fortunate to be one of the sort of seven early executives to join him uh, with that in the basement of JP Morgan's offices on embankments in London. Small company, I think we're half a billion dollars. And uh, you, you'll recall it was a very acquisitive business. I think within our first year, I was held up in, in Sydney in a data room. We, we ended up acquiring MIM. Um, you know, we doubled the company and carried on in that way. So I think within five years, you know, we started prior to the super cycle, but within a short period, you know, the business was like 60, 60 billion in market cap. And, um, you know, that took me in different roles. I co-headed M&A, um, went to South Africa to sort out the, some of the empowerment deals in the alloys business, the CFO, and then came to Canada when we did the hostile takeover of Falconbridge, thinking it would be two years, and I just celebrated 16. I, I love Canada. It's a beautiful place. I've lived in five countries. I uh, didn't want to um, move to Switzerland and join there. Ended up taking on a little later the, the Barrack CFO role at a time when that business really had a bit of a tough time. Gold was going down at about $13 billion in debt on the balance sheet that had lost money for three or four years. And particularly with the integration and restructuring skills of Billiton, I felt it could make a difference. And that's pretty much what we did within a short time, like reset the cost structure, got it to make cash when gold had dropped to 1050 and um, reset the mine plans and worked with a really good team of people there. And then I was approached um, really by Elliot out of New York to see if I wanted to start a, a, the business I've started uh, with them as a capital provider. And kind of the idea that, you know, there's an opportunity here to really provide, uh, build a business from scratch, clean sheet. With, with a sophisticated, really patient form of capital, which I think is important in the mining space, uh, with a lot of naysayers and skeptics. But uh, yeah, six and a half years later, it's uh, it's been a great journey. So I love this industry and it's been a great adventure. There's a lot of things that you mentioned there that we want to dig into, but I want to talk a little bit about, it seems like there was a lot of people in Billiton that really learned that skill of how to take an asset and restructure it, reset it up. I was on the BHP side when the BHP Billiton kind of thing combined. And I found, I think, you know, like that was really a skill set that, that kind of was brought into BHP when BHP and Billiton combined in that. I always felt like, you know, like BHP had great assets, like squidginess around those assets because the assets were just really good. Whereas Billiton had these assets where, you know, you really needed to kind of be on top of those assets otherwise you know they could just spiral out of control and just kind of blow the company up yeah it, it's an interesting one because you know you're going back in the time machine to sort of 2000 2001 
And if you think about it that time, if you, if you go back even further to the DNA of, of Billiton and really Gencore, the original strategy, I think, was by the, one of the former minister of, of finance, a guy called Derek Keyes, who got together this young swashbuckling group with, you know, Gilbertson, Deb Monroe, um, Mike Sullivan and Mick Davis and others. And it was firstly recognizing that if they wanted to grow a world-class mining company, you had to get out of the exchange controls in South Africa. And the assets they had at the time were, you know, deep level gold mines, um, you know, they certainly weren't sort of of the quality and tier that you just sort of mentioned with, with BHP. Mm-hmm. Um, but you had a group of very sort of young, ambitious, um, I think quite entrepreneurial people with an organization that wasn't overly burdensome with, with um, bureaucracy and hierarchy. Uh, you know, they identified um, the Billiton transaction that was well-timed with hindsight. But I think to your point, I think if you listen to the strategies of most of the diversifieds at the time, it felt a little like a unicorn uh, hunting exercise. You know, everyone's looking for first quartile, you know, like long life, so on and so forth. And I think the whole moniker around value creation was getting lost. Because remember, there was also a period where the sector, I think, lost a bit of its way. We'd had these periods of real declining prices. Um, the sector really not created any shareholder value for a very, very long period of time. I mean, that like period of like, you know, the late 80s to, to the 90s was, was like yeah. a disaster for like return on investment in mining. Completely. And also really hard to attract talent, right? Uh, I think it's a problem today, but um, it was it was a real issue. So you had a group of guys who would look critically at not just the opportunity with, you know, resetting these assets, reducing cost structures, proving up more reserves. How do you actually create return on return on capital and return on investment uh, at that point? But also the softer side is very often a lot of these organizations and still today I see it are quite siloed. And if you have the same teams, the same skills, the same management um, people, very often you just delayer it. You actually push down accountability to where the money's made at, at the operations, and you do that well. It's amazing what you can achieve and. Um, just make sure that you do a really good job with governance, um, capital allocation, and so on and so forth, and talent uh, attraction. It becomes quite self-fulfilling. Because if you remember that time, like BHP always had these beautiful assets, but the, the, the merger at the time was this idea of for this really energized team on the Billiton side and, and then with these wonderful assets on, on the BHP side. Because BHP had stubbed its toe, I think, at that time on HBI, Magma Copper, Correct. Octeti, Hartley. So, you know, there was, it, was pretty, it was pretty tough. And you know, I think bringing those two together, the culture and re-energizing, it was part of the proposition. It's interesting because I think it was one of the few kind of mergers where it wasn't really about the tangible assets of the two companies no. kind of combining. You know, it was about the the management ethos on one side and and, and the physical assets and, and how the combination of those could could actually, you know, become a much bigger company and, and, and better company. And and the you know, proof's kind of in the pudding that, you know, the company did become a much better kind of behemoth on the other side of it. I think that's right. And, you know, all, all these businesses over time, uh, centralized, decentralized, do all these things. But in many ways, as you say, a lot of the, individuals that were involved there then who have gone on to do different things and for me that was part of the appeal with Extrata at the time was just a chance to work with Mick and creating something almost from scratch and in many ways it's what prompted me to leave a pretty good paying job at, at Barrick as CFO to to start this business uh, it's just the opportunity to build something from scratch. Now in hindsight you look at it the the meteoric rise of the company was obvious but you know did it feel like that when you were kind of inside the company it, it never does people write these stories with hindsight right and then it all looks quite simple um I think when we started I mean at the time I remember watching the share price going down we were drawing charts on the on the whiteboard around okay if we look at the, the usual thing of uh, like say net asset value per share over time as a proxy for share price and then the aging with reserves and the question we had is like, what would what would it take to sort of double the share price, at least on a constant, you know, price basis? Because there's this big gap. Once you layer in projects and other things, you've got a gap. And, you know, we were very active, obviously, um, at, at looking at different opportunities. But I know from starting this business as well in the beginning, there's only so many institutions give you the time of day. Uh, there was no super cycle uh, discussion at that point. You know, I think even when we did the MIM transaction, because I just I just led a small deal in Germany on a smelter called Nordenham, went across and we'd looked at PGM opportunities and a ton of other things at the time. 
but as we started working on uh, MIM, it was, yeah, I think there were a lot of mining companies who were pretty scornful about the asset quality and the asset base. And once we had done it, we had integrated it. I, I lived there for, I lived in Brisbane for three months or so, integrating part of the business. Um, and you just done the simple things, sort out the corporate office, you know, make capital available, reorient it and, and de-bottleneck the businesses. Suddenly, you know, value was created. That was that was a huge launch pad for the business for what was to come. Mixed philosophy, you had a couple of just simple truisms that have stayed with me. You know, the, the ability to ensure that ultimately, like you, simple things, you'd say, look, I'll never fire people for making mistakes. I'll fire them for hiding mistakes. You know, pushing down that accountability to the sites, making sure that you know, you've got a very simple, transparent overlay between the sites and the office that the money ultimately belongs to the corporate offices, capital allocators, tax structures, things like really an EBIT model. It's a very small group of guys at the corporate office who challenge each other are really high functioning and people that, you know, just sort of make you a better version of yourself to be around. It's, it's a very empowering environment, not uh, not bureaucratic at all. I, I loved it. I think that was one of the things that I think really separated Extrata when it kind of grew is that you guys did a lot of stuff in that in that time yeah and some was you know great and some were mistakes you know like in in uh, in hindsight you could have done them differently and some were kind of you know somewhere in the middle yeah but I always find it funny when people you know like oh well yeah like Extrata made all these mistakes and you know like well yeah like that's part and parcel of doing a lot of things because you're not going to get all of them right you know you're just hoping that more are right than than the ones that you get wrong at the end of the day i think it's it's true in mining and i think it's true in anywhere the problem in mining very often is some of the mistakes can be so expensive and catastrophic but we're all in the business of making judgment in the face of uncertainty and taking calculated risk and uh you know I, I th you look at it with a very different sector with musk and spacex as an example I think the reason he's been able to innovate is he's not afraid ultimately for you know, to, to deal with failure and to iterate, to learn and to be able to move forward. And I, I don't know about you and your personal investing uh, uh, environments or elsewhere, but I know we all would like to think we could pick winners, but certainly I don't do it personally. I haven't met a group yet that, that do. Hopefully on balance, you do a much better job of making good decisions and then the world turns out to, you know, hopefully not throw too many curveballs at you. But I think that, um, that that earlier point about it's okay to make mistakes. Just want to make sure that you're not hiding them. Yeah, like like pilots have this uh, like ability to kind of talk about their mistakes, and if they talk about it, you know, they, they don't feel any career ramifications. But if they hide it, you know, they feel career ramifications. And so, you know, so the whole industry kind of learns from all the mistakes of, of of all the pilots. And I think you know, like we're sometimes a little bit guarded about that because we think that's going to be the career limiting move because I made this mistake. I think it comes down to the importance of culture, though, in any organization, as much as anything. Like if uh, you know, you, you can think of your favorite sort of mining conglomerates or whatever, where if there's, there's either a culture of fear or, or blame apportionment, as opposed to sort of being able to say, okay, like this has happened. How do we triage? How do we support the guys on the ground dealing with things? Because it's very seldom, at least in my in my experience, that you've got people turning up to work to figure out how they can do bad things, right? People want to do a good job. Sorry. So if you assume that as a premise and you assume that you're hiring sensible people or you're not doing a good recruitment job, then why would you spend so much time to not empower them to, to do the right thing and to work with them when things don't go to plan? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's the phenomenal kind of like aspect is that, you know, the culture would override, you know, like any kind of like ability or inability people feel about what, what's going to happen to their job. So if you can kind of get that cultural piece right, then, uh, you know, like surely no one would be, or people would be empowered to kind of talk about the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah. And and then there's plenty of that, right? Like, yeah, this like, and I think this it's to your point that you kind of mentioned is that, you know, like ultimately, if you think about mining as an industry, you know, like most miners are price takers, they're not price setters. So, so you know, so, so ultimately, there's a certain fundamental part of the business that is always out of your control. So there's always some level of uncertainty attached to it. And so, you know, like you could be conservative and have a small level of uncertainty, or you could be aggressive and have a high level of uncertainty. But, you know, like at some point, you're going to get that probability game wrong and, and and you might have to pay a price for that i think that's right and you know i think back to our experience when we go back to 2007 8 when lehman's collapsed and you know i know an extra at the time you know what was a business i don't know we we're probably doing 25 billion ebitda back then our nickel business had just done about two and a half billion shortly after the acquisition nickel had gone to nearly 25 dollars a pound 
by the time Lehman's had collapsed, it was 10.50 on its way down to four. And, you know, a sensible level of gearing just just six months prior suddenly becomes like really problematic, which I know from my, my barrack experience, like the ultimate risk mitigant, I think, in the mining space for markets that you can't control, because you're right, there's price takers. Sometimes when those things happen, you, you can't deal with the unforeseen and cut costs and do everything without actually potentially really, you know, impairing your business. So uh, you need liquidity. And that's why I'm not a big fan of debt in a business. I know it's there's an efficiency to it in the capital structure, but when things don't necessarily work out um, according to plan or there's a market adjustment, and I know we like to think that those don't happen very often, but go back and look, uh, they've been happening more often. It's like weather events. Why were you interested to kind of move to, you know, like something outside of kind of the traditional, you know, mining company space? I suppose one, I've always had a sense of curiosity in this space. Um, I've had the good fortune of working in that sort of environment, as you mentioned, in the bulletins and others. And, you know, we originally, I think even in 2000, although now I only realize with hindsight, we were actually starting to play around with things around the volatility of pricing in a diversified how actually quite low and undermining the multiples were for a dollar of earnings or even dial cash flow compared to say gold companies trading in Canada at the time. And, you know, the question was if you could actually bifurcate some of those cash flow streams, could some of them be more valuable to certain investors than others? And in so doing actually unlock value for shareholders, uh, your shareholders in the process as a try as opposed to trying to be all things to all people or attract the sort of traditional conglomerate discount. So we were toying with those back then. Um, the first time I saw the streaming and royalty model through the eyes of a diversified was actually when we bought MIM. One of the assets in that mix was Alambrera. And Charlie Sotain had just turned that asset around. Uh, yep. Ian Telfer had flown to London at the time to sort of see because this copper asset, he wanted to stream the gold. And you know, we would trade it, I don't know, four, four or five times EV with our multiple. Uh, I think if he wasn't um, as cheap on his offer, we we probably would have done it back then. But it was, you know, it was it was an interesting thing to see that this goal that was just a byproduct credit, you know, and wasn't really a core focus for us, really had value to others. And then Barrick, when <clears throat> I was looking to restructure, you know, when you're sitting in the seat, and it's a thing that's really informed a how we compete because you're right, there's uh, there's quite a lot of new entrants that have come into the space in the streaming and royalty space. But I think you've got to bifurcate it and choose how you actually strategically compete. And what's your like competitive advantage, right? Like, you know, like what are you going to ha- hang your hat on? Exactly. So I think for us, firstly, having sat on the other side where, you know, you've got 13 billion in debt, you've lost billions of dollars in cash flow in prior years. My all in sustaining break even that wasn't public at the time for 15 would have been 1700 gold when gold was going to 1050. So we would have shed another billion dollars of cash in 15 alone if we hadn't reset that business. But at the same time, if gold's down there and you're trying to sell assets, you're selling EBITDA and you're selling optionality, and it's usually at a bad time. But you can't issue equity because your equity is under pressure. It's super expensive if you can. Uh, you, do, you don't want to do more debt because you're going sub-investment grade. If you're selling assets, you've got to make sure that you're not making the situation worse because you're selling EBITDA. So as part of that restructuring, um, we actually ended up doing a stream for 610 million on a Dominican asset called Pablo Vieira. And it, it allowed me to see firsthand that one, just how well you can structure these things to the sort of competitive cost of funding. Um, but three, um, really that it's, even though there's a perception of hyper-competitiveness, I think in this space, it really isn't. There's only a few guys, there are really three, that had the firepower to write that check, who had the technical, commercial, accounting, and other capabilities to structure the deals in a sensible way and deal with rating agencies and so on and so forth. And we'd done that on the other side. And so <clears throat> there was an insight. And I think to your point on competitive advantage, I wasn't looking to do this at the time, but when you know I was approached somewhat repeatedly, I finally met up with the Elliott guys who I didn't know. I was really impressed with what I saw. And, you know, they are they don't invest in mining as a rule, but they do like um, precious metals as part of their portfolio exposure. They have an infinite time horizon. And I think in the mining space with our time horizons, that's actually really important because a lot of resource funds, um, you know, the guys maybe invest in four years and exit in two or three or something. 
So the cycle, that's right. Yeah, the cycle may or may not be in your favor, and I think it can drive the wrong behavior for for your investors. So the idea, the founding idea at the time, was on my side. I saw two opportunities. The first was having had the experience both in the diversifies, which is most of my career, but then then in precious with um, you know um, the the Barrick experience that conventional forms of funding uh, were becoming more and more scarce and unreliable to this to the mining space i think australia is almost a bit of a, a a microclimate to itself where the markets have been quite supportive on a sustained basis but yeah it, i mean it's a lot more of a like um you know micro economy yes. here like you know the money money kind of stays in yeah. and it comes out and it's a more of a closed system where whereas i think north american markets tend to be a very very different system in that that's, sense i think that's right it's the same with london so i think increasingly there's there's a question of relevance there's a for the minor there's a question of access same with you know debt can often be you know from a risk point of view quite quite problematic and also quite expensive and particularly tough for single asset businesses or you know developers and so on and so forth so the idea was if we had originally as a private company about a billion dollars to deploy with Elliott's firepower they would allow us to compete not at the small end where the barriers to entry are are lower but you know at the large end with the big guys build a team from scratch we we felt there wasn't a scarcity paradigm which I think a lot of people had I thought there was more need uh, for this form of capital than and it wasn't well understood and that really there's an actual symbiotic uh, relationship that you can create if this is done well, because you can't have a winner and a loser. So look to compete directly with those guys, uh, really precious focused, check size typically one to $500 million in size. And then we thought if we deployed, we were assuming in our business plan about deploying about a billion over five years, and then we would transition to the public markets, broaden the, uh, the asset base and, and move on. And we said we wanted to, target cash generating or near cash generating opportunities primarily where there's significant optionality but you create the flywheel of cash flow that you can reinvest you can pay dividends but you can reinvest so you have something that works for mining companies and you're focusing very carefully on 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 the right partner on esg how you can actually complement that and at the same time uh, creating a good investment class a really good precious metal investment class for for investors as well I think you've done a really good job of kind of like explaining why this the streaming model really works for both sides, you know, like investors as well as, as, well as companies. But let, let's take like a step back. You know, so for the layman person out there that doesn't know streaming aside from what they do on Netflix, mm-hmm. you know, like what, what what is kind of like the principle of, of streaming? Like, you know, like what what is the basis of it? It's I'd say that I'd sort of look at typically people talk about royalties and streams <clears throat> as a bucket, and we've got we've got both um in, in the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Look, I think on the smaller end, most of you'll see those businesses will typically accumulate royalties. Royalties are usually a share of uh, either the product or a share of uh, revenue or profits, essentially, uh, usually secured on title. It does vary by jurisdiction, but often these things are struck at a time when a deposit is discovered. Uh, you know, there's um, uh, it, it's not very large in, in value at that point in time. And then obviously, as the deposit grows, becomes a mine and hopefully becomes something very valuable, those things can become very valuable. So. The best and most recent example, <clears throat> I mean, you've seen Deterra and others, but, uh, you know, we saw there was a transaction that Rio did on the Cortez royalty. It was one of the assets that was in portfolio Barrick. They went for over half a billion dollars. I can tell you it wasn't worth that, obviously, when, when they struck it back in the day. So you'll see guys accumulate those. And I think for mining companies, a lot of them have got a lot of these that, frankly, they don't even know they have. Uh, the others will come and tell them they've got them. So they're so below the radar screen. Um, <clears throat> it just has no value recognition for their investors. And it isn't something if they created their own sort of royalty portfolio in the business would even be relevant for most businesses. But it's valuable to these other companies and these investors. So you've seen a lot of companies come out and the company we're acquiring at the moment, uh, Mavericks, was created in that way, right? They were sort of spun out of Pan American Silver with some royalties in 2016. Acquired some from Goldfields. They bought like 51 that were non-core from Newmont. Uh, did this with Barrick. They've done it with Kinross, and they've amassed you know over 140 royalties and streams over that period. Um, <clears throat> contrast that with streams. In some ways, streams are a sort of a, an efficient way of replicating something like a royalty, but at scale. 
so you know we've done so the biggest we've done would be 550 million dollars in 2020 it was the largest precious metal stream in the sector since we started and that is streaming gold and silver uh, uh, on a copper mine in North Parks in uh, New South Wales. So, you know, multi-decade long mine, uh, decades of life ahead of it, but it's a gold and silver byproduct on a, on a low-cost mine with, you know, a lot of life ahead of it where it's just naturally symbiotic. Uh, it, it's worth more to us. We give them a low, you know, competitive cost of funding and we could write a very substantial check for them to continue to invest in in their business. And then we also put things like scholarship programs in place for, to assist with their community investment programs and so on and so forth. But usually there is an upfront payment, just to directly your, your uh, question, an upfront payment, in this case, $550 million. And in return, you're getting um, the ability to stream uh, a, a share of the gold and silver in that mine um, and with an ongoing payment. Say it varies commercially. Um, it could be a fixed dollar per ounce number uh, for every ounce that's delivered, <clears throat> or indeed, um, uh, you know, a percentage of the commodity price that's in there. So in this case, say 10%. But what that allows you to do is participate of the, the life of mine, um, you know, in that particular commodity. And the important thing for that to work is um, compared to the other alternatives, you're always competing, not just with others in the space, but with conventional forms of funding. And it, because it's so long dated, um, if you think about going back to debt, you know, I've, I remember looking at a spodumene opportunity in Australia, which we were quite interested in. It's non-core. We focus primarily on precious, but really good bunch of operators building a mine out there. Spodumene lately is, you know, doing pretty darn well. But back then, not so much. And um, this team, you know, we offered them a, a streaming opportunity, which was low cost, very long dated. It has, it's not debt. We take risks. So if they don't succeed, we take that that uh, production risk, uh, which when you're building a mine is a really significant risk mitigant. But anyway, they took some pretty high cost debt as a single asset developer. And when, you know, the lithium price was under pressure, the asset went bust. Whereas if they'd actually taken this form of funding, um, the second owner is doing well now. But uh, because they recapitalized it and they built out, but you are betting the farm uh, on those things. Whereas, you know, if they'd gone down in a tough price environment, we would have essentially just gone down with them. They wouldn't have delivered to us. They only deliver when they produce, of course. Yeah, like I kind of think about it is like, yeah, like a royalty is kind of like an option. Like, yeah, like, you know, you know so, so people that understand financial instruments or options, like, yeah, it's kind of like an option. So, yeah, like today it's not worth much, but yeah, in 10 years time, it'll be worth something. And you did a good job of kind of like mentioning that it's really an alternative way of financing. And yeah, and then that's kind of the benefit is that when you're streaming, you're kind of sharing the financial risk of, of producing this commodity, which you're going to have some benefit out of it because you're not getting the whole benefit because the other person that's that's providing the streaming funding, you know, like they, they're going to get some other benefit of that commodity as well. But, you know, but you're not holding the whole bag at that time. And if, and if things go bad, then, you know, like you got to have the debt to kind of build this mine and, and, and do all of that. And so I, I think that's kind of the value of these things is that particularly streaming, I think, is just, it just kind of diversifies that financial risk involved in building a mine and and you know the operational cost of actually getting commodities out and all of this you know like so, so you guys are kind of partaking in that financial risk and then you know based on your modeling if you think you can do it for the right commodities you know like you can kind of get the payoff then as well if you think about it and and this is you talked about competitive advantage or differentiation earlier you know, I think for us, firstly, coming out of uh, a private setting, private equity capital is uh, is not free. No capital is free, but right. our team actually has over every single member of my team has significant equity in our business. We own over 6 million shares. And that was as a consequence of generating a return in excess of our cost to carry. And that sounds obvious, but, you know, it, it isn't necessarily. And I think when you look at it over time, and it was informed through our strategy of you know, producing, you know, producing like 70% of our ounces are really on byproducts on, on base metal and PGM mines, where it is not a core focus for that operator, but they have the margins and it has these sort of beneficial effects. So one of the misnomers we have sometimes is, well, you know, it's, it's not good for equity investors. Well, I'll give you a couple of simple examples like Continental, uh, which is a, a mine we invested in. Newmont brought us into this at a time down in uh, Columbia place I'd done work in in Billiton in 2000 on a privatization back there. 
you know, they built this beautiful mine, multi-million ounce reserve, uh, big, big land package. We were lost money in. We put, you know, $100 million in streaming some gold and silver. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, these, these sorts of uh, assets, I think, at the time, within a very short period of time, it helped them finish the construction, build out, and they've been acquired by Zijin, uh, who've then gone on and expanded the mine. And we participate in that. But what's, you know, beautiful about it, I mean, they, they, their share price, you know, traded a substantial premium because it was obviously under pressure for a partially built mine going on. And uh, we took a tiny part of their revenue, uh, but gave them the capital they needed to, to, you know, go forward on that. Another good example, which is playing out right now, you know, we <clears throat> surveyed the PGM space in South Africa, which others in the space hadn't done. I operated there and I was, uh, you know, LOCFO in the Bushveld Igneous Complex and knew a lot of the guys there very well. My concern was um, you've got to have a great partner there, uh, certainly a good empowerment partner in order to be successful. And um, the team at IB Platt were just like a, a sample set of one in, in some ways because um, it was like the Buffer King Sovereign Wealth Fund. They do an incredible job. Uh, the board, the management team, like the top draw, these guys build schools, they 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 do they build housing, they do great stuff. So like when the whole PGM space was out for I don't know, six months with strikes, like they didn't lose a day because they just do a wonderful job with that. And so we approached them as we do. Most of our deals have actually been bilateral. Like we do all the bank-led competitive stuff, but usually we're trying to solve problems for management teams as we see it, as people who used to sit in those seats and we'll give them ideas. Usually they go nowhere, but occasionally they go somewhere. You know, in that case, we were helping them replace high-cost debt uh, from the buyout of their joint venture on stale drift with Anglo-American Platinum did the deal. Um, I think at that time, and we did a $145 million check. We streamed a, a gold byproduct on there, you know, on the PGM mine. Uh, for us, it's a multi-decade good asset. We put 100,000 US a year scholarship programs in to help the communities and give back to the mining space with engineers and geos. But, you know, importantly, I think at that time, their equity price, their market cap was under a billion. We all know what's happened to, you know, equity capital markets and share prices since. But, with the takeover attention of Northern and Implats, uh, they're, I don't know, two and a half billion now. Uh, the equity investors are, are doing pretty well. And that comes down to your screening, the asset opportunity itself, and of course, uh, the quality of um, you know the, the management team. So as a streaming business, what's the risk to your business, really? There's, there's several. So look, I think first and foremost, as you know, the thing with the mining sector is when you're essentially engaging in a life of mind relationship, who you're in, who you're partnering with is the biggest thing of all. So, of course, where you play, uh, and our biggest concentration is actually Australia, uh, with by value, you know, obviously a great jurisdiction, and then mostly the the Americas. But it's really making sure, first and foremost, that you have done your homework, that you've got an operator in a jurisdiction where you know that that relationship is likely to endure, because. You're offering a very competitive cost of funding, and usually your shareholders will get rewarded over time through maybe further exploration, you know, life extension, reserve replacement, and so on and so forth. You know, it, it doesn't work very well, this model, if um, that doesn't doesn't play out. Yeah, it doesn't work well if your uh, like operational partner, the yeah, like is completely torching uh, their their asset. You know, like then 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 you're, nobody's actually getting anything out of it. Correct. And if if you can see upfront from your due diligence that it's not just the obvious technical due diligence around tailing stands and the like, but if even just culturally how they embrace uh, working with the communities and their workforce and and the like, uh, business interruption is something that is a risk we share. So it's a benefit to the miner. We've invested and we've supported a number of mining businesses that, you know, have gone from grasslands to going into into production. These things usually take longer. We seldom underwrite anything that looks like what the management teams put out because sadly, look at the data. I think one in five in the recent years have come in prior to the inflationary issues and supply chain you know, have come in more or less on time and on budget, you know, 80% of them don't. So, you yep. know, that's part of the risk you're, you're sharing in. But, um, you know, I think, so that's always a big thing. You have to, in your underwritten case, really thought through the usual stuff that you would in mining M&A. And in some ways it's a little harder because I've spent a lot of time in my career working on M&A and, you know, the companies we discussed. But usually you are being given the keys to those assets. So you have the ability for self-help to some extent, uh, you know, when you when you own those assets. In this case, you're trying to see through 
at, at the management team because you're essentially a passive but supportive form of capital. You know, we have close relationships. We work with them. We'll provide ideas at times if we think that there's ways that they can enhance what they do. But that's ultimately yeah. at their discretion as operators whether or not they they agree with you or they see value uh, from that exchange. And I think that, and I think that's kind of the the, the point. Yeah, you know, like I really kind of wanted to focus on is that you know, like you you are a a, a passive to a large degree a passive investor. Yeah. Uh, whereas, like you know, if you were um, you know if you own like direct equity in the project on the asset or something like that, you know, you probably have a little bit uh, muscle to kind of kind of throw around, especially like a byproduct, right? Because it's not yeah. that's not part of their core business. I think that comes down to. That's a, one of the big differences in stream financing versus, say, royalties. Um, royalties usually is something struck a, a long time ago, and it is what it is. Um, whereas you can highly customize and work with the, the miner to put these in place in a sensible way, including things like, you know, what are your commercial protections? What are your information rights? That's a good point. So you really actually have more interface with those guys. And even so my first deal um, when we started this business was eight months or so after we got going. So we're building the team, we're finding office space, you're building a website and you're trying to get deals done and open bank accounts. It's harder than you think when you're in, in this, in the, uh, starting out. It was a, a mine called um, Cerro Lindo in Peru. You know, we streamed a silver byproduct on a, coal, uh, a, a VMS style deposit in Peru few hours south of Lima, which is copper lead zinc is their primary product. The appeal there was just how low cost and how low capital intensive this business was and how it could continue to replace it. And it's a byproduct. So to your point, like they didn't really even do a lot of reporting on it at the time. It wasn't a core focus for them. So it's just naturally symbiotic. But we had a view when we did that, that there was a, a way to better exploit um, the overall resource, that there was opportunity there, which would benefit them. And we did some, we spent $40,000 or so at the time, uh, just on the study, we shared it with them. It's like, here's some free consulting, if you will. If you think it's interesting, then let's go with it. And in the beginning, it, it had no purchase. But after a while, you know, the team sort of looked through it, saw the merits and really embraced that. And it's gone well. And so I, I guess what I'm pointing to is one, there are commercial protections. Like we want to make sure very often that businesses are not going to take on too much debt. Uh, we, as much as I care about return, I don't want to own and operate assets like um, that's not the model. So we don't, we don't want to be parasitic. We want to make sure that um, these businesses uh, in distressed pricing scenarios uh, on a year by year basis, you want to just understand the risk. You want to ensure that they've got the liquidity and that you can work with the guys to ensure they don't go take on too much leverage or that they've got the buffer to you know deal with the unforeseen. And also recognize that every management team is, is unique. Like investors often look at the mining space and miners as monolithic and they'll say, well, you know, those guys could have raised debt because they're right. They could easily have raised debt, but just as a cultural point, they didn't like a lot of debt and they wanted to diversify their, you know, their funding sources. And this was a form of natural arbitrage. It's worth three or four times EBITDA. It's worth more to us and our investors. So, you know, I think we found a lot of opportunity plus the relationships going forward. And when you're, like recently, it's a small investment, but we helped. Um, we got a small investment in Mongolia with a group called Step, and we helped bring nine or ten of the uh, local delegates out to uh, Canada. You know, worked with a, a, a university here on um, a couple of weeks just on generating some environmental best practices, help them experience that so they can then take that back and implement it. So that's sort of value over and above just, you know writing a check yeah and i think that's a that's a good point in that uh you know like it's in your best interest to actually create a relationship relationship that's symbiotic you know like and i yeah like you can you can obviously be completely passive uh or you could be you know completely parasitic if you really wanted yeah like depending on what what, what type of partner you have but it's really in your benefit to kind of help your partner because sure. um you know like ultimately you know like your financial uh, future benefit kind of ties to them actually doing as good a job as possible. It entirely is. But, you know, if you even look at it on a, a simple business school level, like you think, is it a single game or is it a repeated game? Uh, you know, if it's a, if it's a one-time game, you want to maximize profit in that one-off event, then maybe you behave in a way that is just, you know, you have a winner and a loser because you only get to play the game once. Guess what? You play this game time and time again. You want to be the best version of yourself and, we do get business referrals from others. Uh, you know, we've 
often seen, particularly on single asset situations, a lot of the CEOs in these businesses are really guys who are former GMs of mines, they're good operators, but then maybe don't have a lot of technical or commercial sophistication. And sometimes the CFOs are not guys who are, they may be good accountants, they're good at reporting, but maybe they haven't had a lot of that experience themselves. So just trying to help them, uh, we spend time just educating people where you'll provide proposals and they've got to help think through even their advisors at times. How do I think about this? The way I was talking about it, Barrack earlier, between debt, equity, other forms, you know, con convertibles, and of course, this form of funding. And it has to make sense compared to those alternatives. And you, you need to actually help them understand the merits of that. One of the, I guess, things that I wanted to kind of talk to you about is that, you know, like recently it seems like that there's a lot more uh, royalty in streaming companies. Do you care to comment why? You know, like, I guess I have kind of some yeah. opinions on why, but, but I'd be interested to know as someone that that's sitting on that side of the fence, why do you think they're becoming more and more prevalent? Yeah, it's an interesting one because we get this question in a different way from investors. And that is, oh, this looks like it's getting more crowded and more competitive. Uh, that must be tough. But I think I go back to the founding idea of this business. So, you know, it was really that there's not a scarcity paradigm. Yeah, I, I'm a huge believer in this energy transition. I, I love cars. I, I've got an old 68. Um, I, I do that. But at the same time, I've been driving EVs for a decade. And as a consumer product, the, the future on electrification, consumer adoption, and the metal intensity that need that is going to need to deliver that, that future is a massive opportunity uh, for the mining sector uh, and, and investors. It, it may not happen in the next X months, but it's there. And I believe the sort of funding we're talking about can really be part of their cocktail, really to help enable that, that future. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it's just one of those environments which I think when you then say, okay, what does that mean when you think about the competitive landscape? We go back to founding in 2016. One, I don't think there's a scarcity paradigm. I think there's more opportunity if you're patient than there is capital available, actually. Um, then I think about, you know, where do you, how do you segment the, the competitive space? When we started in 16, I'm sitting in, in Toronto, uh, the bank is in Bay Street. The narrative was, there's not a lot to do here. You've got these three big companies, they're beautiful. You're never going to compete with them, particularly with private equity. There was a scarcity paradigm. And all the good deals have been done. And uh, you're going to have to go to some really risky jurisdictions if you want to make money. And I see, like, that's fine. But that's not how we, we view the space. And our history has shown that I think we were right. Like, we found it. We've looked at over 600 opportunities for so far 80 assets. And after we hopefully close the Mavericks deal in January, we'll have, um, I don't know, 228 assets um, in the portfolio. So, there's been a there's been a significant and we haven't had to violate the model in order to achieve that. Uh, so it's been important. Um, but at the time in 16, when we started, besides that narrative, we also saw there were there were some new entrants coming out of Asia and elsewhere into the space who no longer exist. Uh, so I think your team, how you compete, your networks and all that actually do matter, particularly at the big end where we've chosen to participate. I don't feel that the competitive dynamics at the space that we play in are any more onerous than they were when we started six and a half years ago. Yeah, okay. But to your point, I think there are, it's objectively and empirically true that there are a lot more guys that are doing this. And I think that's where we viewed the smaller end accumulating existing royalties um, from mining companies, uh, maybe doing a, you know, a model where uh, people generate their own royalties on land packages. There's businesses who do that quite well. You know, that's a different model and we've seen a lot more do it i think the barriers to entry are lower i think the recognition of various mining companies that there is value to be having stuff they didn't even know they had or that they've got very little value on has uh, been an enabler of some of those new entrants and new businesses or it's helped some of those businesses grow i think that's a lot of that story uh for just the sheer number that is that has sort of emerged in in the last while so it's interesting that, you know, like you kind of build this business around like, you know, like 2016, 2017, you know, like that, that era, I guess my kind of hypothesis about why, you know, there seems to be more streaming companies is because, you know, that was an era where, you know, mining finance really kind of dried up, you know, like there wasn't a lot of capital available for people that wanted to to build mines or to do anything. So so here's my kind of thing, and I'm, you know, like that created this kind of space or this niche for 
private equity to kind of come in and say, well, we can be an alternate source of finance in a different way. And and yeah, and I think that kind of led to the, the streaming model to kind of develop because you know, on one hand, you had all of these companies that wanted to be operators, but they just couldn't, I think, access the amount of capital that they that they could. And that created, I think, this nice space for private equity to kind of come in and say, well, you know, we're not going to completely replace the banks that are financing mining projects, but, you know, but we can be an alternate source in a different way that they can kind of finance projects. Do you think that that's part of the reason why there has been this, like, this explosion of these type of companies? A couple of comments on that. The first is, bear in mind, we did our first deal in... December 16, um, I'd say we would, until very recently, we were averaging, say, three deals a year, $200 million deployed at a time. And that cadence was pretty steady. Uh, so it has, it wasn't as if there was like this big flush of deals in, say, 16, 17. And then, you know, I think what we found is the nature of the deal flow, um, some ebbs and flows, like um, early on, I think there was sort of more balance sheet repair for some businesses uh, replacing high cost debt and the like there's always my development stuff but you could have diligence that well and i think recently in particular with inflation and supply chain constraints uh it's not for the faint of heart you've really got a lot of the 43 101s and the studies out there are backward looking and they're stale you've really got to make sure that people are factored in the right stuff and you underwrite the right thing so we always see those opportunities. Um, we do. We've done a bunch of acquisition financing um, alongside miners, where they're, they're looking for competitive funding as part of a of a, a funding cocktail. But they want a partner who's not going to jam them. They want someone who can get it done, and execution certainty is there. So there's always that mix, and then there's just this sort of natural arbitrage, like a group that has maybe a use of proceeds. It's non-core. They might have a royalty portfolio or there's a stream on a byproduct or something. That's right. And they just don't value it as part of their core business. So, you know, so it gives the opportunity for someone else to acquire it. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of evergreen. I mean, you have these ebbs and flows and I feel as long as you're not drawn into doing deals for the sake of it or growing size for size sake, you've got to be disciplined. The, the you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunity. Like our pipeline now, I actually don't think I've seen it busier ever. Is it, is it harder for you to do deals? Has it become easier for you to do deals? Like, is there a market cycle that like, you know, impinges on your business model? You would think so, right? Uh, I'd say yes and no. And uh, why I say yes and no is um, obviously if you've got an abundance of cheap capital, firstly, you don't see that very often in the money space. I think those windows are, they're there and then they're kind of narrow. And I also feel just look at the world we're, we're coming, we're coming into um, the, the era of, of free money seems to uh, certainly be uh, under threat, right? So I, I think um, I think that's certainly one one thematic that is is pretty difficult. But if you just play um, you play this forward, like we found periods where there is a lot of um, let's say cheaper equity available or lower cost debt that's available, it may coincide with let's say a high gold price. And if uh, someone's trying to build a mine and it's polymetallic, and there's a lot of polymetallic ore bodies out there, this doesn't necessarily displace, but it complements. So there'll be, you know, some equity, there'll be some high cost debts, there'll be some uh, or senior secured debt, there'll be a stream, maybe there'll be some additional debt. We've done a lot of financing like that. And even if you think about it just from a risk point of view, there's a cost element, but particularly on developing or ramping mines, if you can stream a byproduct, and you've got capital in that stack that is super patient. And if you don't deliver the mine on the how many years you said it would take place and it's a year later or it's it's never, the streamer bears that risk. Like you carry that risk as as does the equity holder. Whereas if, of course, you've got debt, you, you're either trying to negotiate at some cost to push out as repayments and you've got maybe a, an interest holiday, but it doesn't come free. You know, you, you have to think about your funding uh, stack uh, in a very thoughtful way. And it, it really has a role to play there, I believe. And so this is, I think, uh, the, you know, one of the kind of the first points you made going back to the to that point in that, you know, like one of your differentiators is that, you know, like your financial backers are, are, are patient, you know, they're happy to wait that kind of long, long cycle. They were wanting something like, you know, quick in and out, you know, like I, I, I think this would be the, the the worst model for them in that sense, because, you know, like you're going to have to transact when you don't want to, and then it's not the right kind of arbitrage opportunity and, and things like that. Yeah, that's true. Well, obviously, we we transitioned to the Toronto Stock Exchange. Uh, it shows you the state of the equity capital markets going to earlier point, because we we listed in May of 19, and at the time, it was the largest um, 
mining IPO in Toronto in like 10 years and the largest precious deal globally in or IPO since 2008. And I think that says more about the state of the mining sector's IPOs than it does necessarily about our own. Uh, it was, I was surprised to see that. But what it does mean is obviously we've got a, a, a growing and more diversified um, set of investors. There's no monolithic investor. But I certainly know in, in Elliot's case, for me, they've been the perfect partner. Their time horizon is uh, is an important facet. But for them, as a, they looked at different ways of investing in precious metals. Like you hold bullion that has a cost. You hold ETFs that has a cost. You hold equities. You know, the, the sector often has a habit of stepping on the garden rake when it comes to capital allocation or so. So there's risk in there. And they really admired um, Franco's impressive track record, but wondered, you know, could we build a business that didn't have the oil and gas element to it, was very precious focused in execution and uh, could compete and build the next Franco as, as an idea. And part of the appeal is, you know, is once you've created the right sort of team, the right portfolio, you know, like times like this, we don't get margin compression. Like a GNA is pretty constant. It's not a high overhead business. You know, our cash margins are 90%. Uh, we have no debt. And uh, we're generating like pro forma now with, um, with the Mavericks deal, just around 150 million of free cash a year. And then with our dividend, that's pretty easy to service. Like you know, our current dividends only 30 million a year. And that's the highest dividend yield in the space. So it's um it's a it's a highly cash generative model, very defensive when it comes to risk. And you can't really see create a mining company that I've seen that has the same level of diversification that you can create here just by virtue of the sheer number of assets that you can incorporate. So it has a lot of these very defensive elements that I think explains, you know, the, the sort of intrinsic valuation potential. One of my hypotheses about why the sector I think has grown is kind of like how like this sector can allocate capital, I think, differently than what banks can and or, or what, you know, even mining operators can access. You know, like the other part, I think, is really around what you're kind of talking about is that the capital efficiency of these companies, you know, like it's is not something that, you know, like mining operators could, you know, like could kind of handle. Again, if you think about a, a you know, like a, a mining company that's like, you know, creating, say, a billion dollar, a billion dollars every year, or even like, you know, in your case, $150 million, you know, like that's a fundamentally different operation because, you know, there's a couple of hundred people and, you know, they've got all of these kind of issues and, and um, you know, the operational expenditure is quite high and, and all of those things. But for, yeah, like, you know, look at Franco, like, yeah, it's a whatever, $20 billion company is run by like 50 people. Like We were 13. Uh, you yeah, know, that's uh, right. Exactly. That I think is also kind of the part is that, you know, if you're talking about like, you know, like how to be capital efficient, A, you can be that, but B, you can also diversify your risk by having your money in all of these different assets rather than just having it in one asset and, and you know, like, and you're vetted to that asset. Yeah. The, the commodity price of that asset, everything relating to that one asset. Absolutely. And and you see it, Extrada, we used to talk about diversification by commodity country, you know, um, asset. Um, here, we've got our biggest concentration pro forma would be North Parks, which is say 24%. You'll see a similar thing, even Franco and and uh, and say Wheaton is the two biggest in the space. You know, like Wheaton's got Solobo, uh, Franco's got Cover to Panama. That's like, you know, nearly a third of, of of their assets. So they've got this one chunky asset. But you know, then we the rest of the assets are below ten percent when you look at it by value. And there's a lot of them. I mean, we'll have twenty nine operating assets <clears throat> of but of of say two hundred twenty eight. So there's this big bucket of optionality that comes along for the ride, short, medium, and longer term. But at the same time, and a lot of diversification, but those cash generating assets really are are quite quite diversified. And then, you know, same thing by region. Um, you know, you really do have that. And then we are concentrated by commodity and by by design. So, you know, 75% um will, will will be gold. And it's only, I think we're 93% um will be gold and silver as, as sort of a precious investment vehicle. And the rest is really kind of copper and nickel and is there a reason why you are so concentrated in precious metal? Is it just because they, you know, like other commodity classes have like, you know, like nickel, like, yeah, it, it, it obviously has a great year once, but then, you know, it, it'll have. I know, it's the reason they call it devil's copper. It's, uh, it's tough. Yeah, yeah. Tough. It's, it's a it's a hard commodity to build a business on if, if you're yeah, really kind of setting it up. Boy, you can make money when it's when it's going. It's true. Yeah. Um, look, I, I remember like my first week in the, in the CFO seat at, at Barrick and thinking, okay, I've lived in the comfortable 
maybe not comfortable, but I've lived in this sort of familiar background of supply and demand of bulks and base metals. And, you know, you spend a lot of time with your macro assumptions, looking at the various sources of, of supply that exist, where they'll come on, where the cost curve is. It's all very nice. And I try to understand with all the experts I could find the best I could before actually really starting how to think about the gold space. And my conclusion was simple. It's like, firstly, nobody really knows. But secondly, supply and demand is not as much of a factor. And thirdly, it's really a currency, right? Um, and so, you know, what's happening with interest rates and certainly the US dollar is really the factor. But when you then look at gold over time, it is something that's had a store value of a, of a millennia. Um, it is something when these businesses have traditionally over time uh, attracted a, a premium multiple. And if you embrace that, and embrace it in the sense that, you know, go back to how we thought about competing. I feel this model works best when you can enable businesses that generate a, a severe societal need for things like energy transition. I think the mining sector as a whole is it, we've got a better job that we have to do to engage with people who enjoy the products every day who seem to have an anti-mining bias, but really don't understand that this stuff doesn't magically appear out of anywhere. Like there are people do incredible work to deliver these damn products. So um, you know, it, so our form of funding, particularly if we're able to provide, you know, that sort of patient long dated uh, low cost funding, and it's on a byproduct in particular, it provides people who are looking for that precious exposure who can diversify themselves if they want to get some of that other exposure, stick to the knitting, do it right. Like guys will say to us, um, you know, well, why don't you go, you know, you've done stuff in nickel and copper and other businesses, why don't you do more nickel and copper stuff? Well, I think the best thing I can do to help nickel and copper businesses is, you know, stream their byproducts because otherwise I'm competing for their primary product ultimately. And um, yeah, we can do that. And we have done some of that, but the highest and best use of the capital and the way you can create value, I think on both sides is the way we've sort of chosen to compete. You you mentioned a, a little bit about kind of the retaining of staff, uh, and you and you mentioned that it, you know like it's kind of a kind of an issue that you know the industry kind of faces. Do you, do you care to elaborate a little bit about like you know wh why you kind of made? Yeah, you know, it seems like a throwaway comment, but I'm going to say it's a throwaway comment. But you know, like what, what was yeah. the nature for kind of saying that? Look, I I think in normal times <clears throat> the sector has been chronically, you know, certainly un underserving its needs when it comes to talent requirements um i think we've got a much better job to if, if you're looking I, I can't think of a better thing for a generation that is looking to deal with the climate challenge and you know find a, a career of purpose there is so much opportunity in this sector for us to be able to do that you know when people when, when you start a business and you pay taxes central government sitting in capitals don't necessarily do a great job of actually allocating benefits to remote communities and helping uplift them. Whereas mining companies, when done right, really do do that very well. So I think there's so much scope to bring fresh ideas, fresh thinking, new talent, but we don't, you know, whenever there's a, a, um, a tailings event or there's a, an unsafe event somewhere, that becomes the poster for, you know, bad things in the sector. And people don't necessarily see all the good stuff and, you know, hear the stories and see the opportunities here. I think we really have to do that. Now, I think we also have a kind of a generational uh, cliff that is coming from a talent point of view. And it's coinciding with a time where, you know, we have, um, I think uh, we're on the cusp of a lot more demand for the sort of skills that will be needed to meet the future supply. If you believe in the energy transition and decarburization and the metals needs for those mines. So I think there's a severe need. There really, really is. And it's not just, um, you know, the universities, uh, you know, when I studied back in the day, you know, there were scholarships more readily available, uh, you know, to fund these things, um, the, you know, these the, the sort of education programs. Uh, universities are just churning out fewer and fewer, and then mining companies and others providing maybe less opportunity to uh, provide the experience and the growth that's needed, I think, to create uh, the next generation of, of talent and leadership. I think it's an acute problem for the sector. I mean, I think the points you made are, I, I think, are fantastic in that, you know, at a time where, where we we as an industry should be as outward facing as, as possible to try to convince people about what we're doing and, and you know, how we could be part of the solution. Well, I think we are becoming far more internal in how we actually talk. Yeah, you know, like we're, we, like, you know, we don't seem to want to talk to anyone because of fear of, you know, getting uh, harassed or colored by like some, you know, some social 
you know, value or 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 uh, ethical structure or something like that. And yeah, you know, like at a time, I think we should be doing as much external kind of face uh, communication that, as we should be doing. So yeah, it's a it's a real weird um, hole that we kind of seem to have found ourselves in where we, we can't seem to get out of it. I, I agree with you. I think there's an opportunity for sort of more aspirational, outward sort of visionary leadership to be able to help make that case. And it's not to say that. I mean, it's it's tough running mining companies, right? Um, guys have got a lot of things to deal with, but I think as a collective, um, we, we've got to find a way to to do a better job of that and, and really make that case because it feels like we're playing more uh, defense than going on offense. Um, oh yeah, yeah, completely. Um, and so just as a like out of interest, uh, what, like why did you get into metallurgy, which is where you, how you how you kind of started? What what was the the seed of the, of that? Yeah, it's a, it's a you know it's. Funny how things come about. Um, look, my I'd say my my hero growing up was my grandfather. He's just a, an incredible guy. He was actually city engineer, city engineer Johannesburg for a while, and just this amazing guy. And um, I, you know, I used to work on. So do we have do we have him to blame for the for the layout of Johannesburg, or uh, is there someone else we should blame? Yeah, no, no. But at a time when there was a lot less uh, intense, like he was doing bridges and infrastructure and all that. I guess he was a civil engineer. Uh, you know, worked, uh, did his thing in, uh, with the Royal Engineers in, uh, in Italy and North Africa. He's just had a very interesting life. But, um, you know, I at the time, I, I wanted, um, you know, I used to spend time working on cars with them and tinkering. It was just a very formative experience. And I wanted to, um, originally, I thought I was going to be an electrical engineer. I spent a lot of time tinkering with stuff and, you know, breaking things and having a lot of fun. And it was just before I had to make my sort of career decision. I went to a careers evening. There was a, a, a visiting group out of the Department of Metallurgy and Materials at Vits who their whole focus was on the sort of materials innovations that were going to enable the next generation of technology. And they looked at the space shuttle at the time, which really captured my imagination, like the heat shields and the tiles, the metals and things that were needed in order to make that technology possible uh, really was just to me quite fascinating. And so yeah, that's what got me into metallurgy. And I think the beauty of it, and I think back to my class now, though, um, I'm one of the few guys that is still doing anything sort of mining related. Most have gone on to do everything from nutritionists to, you know, bankers to you, you name it. But I think it is a wonderful grounding, uh, just, you know, those sorts of programs and um, a great a great thing at the time as well at that time in South Africa to be able to be given line responsibility at a very young age, just from a management point of view. Um, yeah, a lot of good experience on offer. So Sean, towards the end of our interview, we, we kind of always ask our guests two questions. Uh, so the first one is, uh, what is something, it could be an idea, a behavior, uh, that you think needs to die in our industry, something that we need to jettison out of the industry? I actually think it's something we touched on in our calls and I put it on different layers and that's this sort of, bunker silo mentality at times you know a lot of the companies i've gotten into won't mention the names but things we've taken over or we've helped restructure um i've been pleasantly surprised well actually not pleasant it's it's not been pleasant like this idea that even within corporate offices you've got these bureaucracies or hierarchies that you know create these silos around different functions there's this strong functional concentration and I think part of the secret source with Extrada and the business that I've really built here is around trying to actually provide people with a broader scope to be able to actually maybe step away from their narrow job descriptions, uh, to actually think on a more holistic level, to work together. And uh, I just think it lends itself to better engagement, better uh, decision-making at the end of the day, better decisions. So we've seen that within mining companies, and I think going back to what we just discussed, I think as a sector, there is, I don't think we we don't sustain the investment uh, in people and in innovation that's needed to solve the problems for declining grades and greater complexity and environmental challenges. I think the future is probably going to come from experience and knowledge in the sector with disruptors like we saw with the aerospace uh, thing going back to earlier points like uh, NASA, the Russians, whatever, couldn't land rockets, you know, on a on a little pad and do the stuff that you know, ultimately mustard as a risk taker who embraced failure, uh, but got people together to do that and to essentially change the cost structure of that industry by an order of magnitude. I think it's going to probably be something like that that will be needed from a more solid lens to actually out of necessity, out of need, that will probably disrupt our sector at some point. So 
Anyway, I think the more we can break down those silos uh, at a site level, at a corporate level, and as a um, as a sector, I think the better better it'll be for all of us, and the easier it'll be to attract talent. I think that's an excellent point. Conversely, and last question: uh, What is something that you think we need to maintain in our industry? You know, something that you think is kind of fundamental to our DNA that we shouldn't forget. I think that that sense of um, of, of just problem solving, adventure, and sort of that can do attitude. Because you think about it, as much as I've just sort of shared the thing, I think shouldn't go, but. It's never ceased to amaze me um, the incredible level of dedication and capability when you go to mine sites on the top of the Andes, up in the, the subarctic, some pretty hostile environments, uh, the deserts in Australia and elsewhere, and the ability of people to um, really with a high level of goodwill. I think most businesses want to uh, you know, work with their, their, their local communities, do the right thing in order to overcome really quite difficult problems at times to uh, to extract these minerals and i think there's that it's a, yeah they can do attitude and their capability that exists not just in one region but all over the place i think is something we we, we need to do more to harness uh, and tell that story and create a viral opportunity hopefully for the space yeah this is a theme that often comes up on on our interviews around that, you know, if you think about an industry that would have a high proportion of people that are intrinsically motivated to do the work, you know, like, yeah, like our industry, like I assume would, would probably be at the at the top end of that kind of, uh, like, you know, the number of people that are in, intrinsically different. Like, you know, you don't hear like, you know, like, uh, like accountants, like, yeah, I have friends that are accountants and they go, mate, like, yeah, I go to work, I, I walk away and yeah, that's it. Like, I don't sit there dreaming about, you know, spreadsheets or uh, things like that at the end of the day. Like, yeah, that, that's, they're not, they the job is not something like that's intrinsically motivating for them. But yeah, but if you're talking about people that, uh, yeah, like are going to kind of the Andes or going to, yeah, like e even your thing, like, you know, going to Colombia, going to all of these, there's got to be some kind of fire inside people that, that, that kind of drives them to go to all of these places. Yeah. Like, and I, I think that's something that, you know, probably the industry doesn't, doesn't highlight uh, a lot of is that, you know, that, like in order to be that crazy person that goes and builds a mine on the on the mountaintop, you know, you got to be a little bit crazy, like that pioneering kind of spirit to go, yeah, like yeah, like why not build a mine at four thousand meters or whatever we need to do, right? Why why wouldn't you want to live an interesting life, right? Oh, that's an excellent story. That's it, Sean. We're pretty much at the end of our interview. Um, thanks a lot for coming on the show. This was a great chat. I, I really, I, th I love the way you uh, you took the conversation in natural directions it was that was great cheers no likewise i really enjoyed talking to you thanks so much cheers this episode of expression radio was brought to you by amart Salim and steve bearsford produced and edited by sean jeffrey and recorded remotely in december 2022 expression radio is supported by the aig the one-to-one -one group and the assay and there's an official media partner of the 2023 pdse conference until next time let's keep exploring